Welcome to the Der Show. Uh, you're watching me live, but for those of you who miss me, you can't watch me live at 5.30 on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Um, you can watch me record it anytime. Just go on uh, Rumble and press the Der Show, and, and you'll see the whole show. I Obviously, I love it when you're live and I'm live, and we're really uh, talking to each other. Uh, yesterday, as you remember, um, I spent most of the show on the issue of whether the president should, could, constitutionally announce in advance that he was going to appoint to the Supreme Court, nominate, because it has to be confirmed, obviously, only a black uh, woman. And I made a strong argument. I thought that, uh, no, no, that wouldn't be uh, proper. But a number of people have responded, and one guy in particular, a lawyer from um, Florida uh, wrote a long, long argument saying the president can appoint anybody he wants, anybody. The Senate may not confirm a person or, or require that he take a religious test, but according to this guy and according to some others that have written to me, the president can announce in advance, uh, uh, I'm only going to appoint a Christian or I'm only going to appoint a Jew or I'm only going to appoint a Muslim. Or more re realistically, he could say, and I think as some have said, I will never appoint an atheist to the Supreme Court. Uh, you can't say that because the Constitution itself, and here I'm going to read to you from uh, Article 6 of the Constitution, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the United States. Obviously, a position on the Supreme Court is an office of public trust in the United States. And obviously, if a president says that no one is qualified for that office who's not a Christian, or who's not a believer, or who's not a Jew, or who's not a Muslim, that person would be violating the Constitution. The same Article 6 also says that all executive officers of the government, which obviously means the president, shall be bound by oath or affirmation. Interestingly, because affirmation suggests you don't have to swear to God. Oath or affirmation to support the Constitution. So no, a president would be acting unconstitutionally if she or he tried to appoint somebody based on a religious test. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It happened, of course, the first hundred years of our history, you had to be a white Protestant, not Catholic, Protestant male to be on the Supreme Court. So every president, including Abraham Lincoln, imposed uh, religious tests. They all violated the Constitution. Maybe in those days there were no qualified Jews to serve on the Supreme Court. I, I doubt that very much. Uh, there were always qualified people of every religion uh, to serve on the Supreme Court. But there's an interesting history behind why we had this provision in our Constitution. We're the only country in the world in the 18th century that said no religious test. Every other country had religious tests. Every other country. England. England in 17... 53 did something remarkable. It passed a statute. I actually have the original copy of this statute. This is the original copy of the statute. I collect things from 1753. 
And believe it or not, in 1753, this is years before the United States established its own independence, a statute was passed by the Parliament, an act to permit persons professing the Jewish religion to be naturalized by Parliament, etc. So it was called the Jew Law. Jews could now be naturalized. They could be members of Parliament. You remember when Benjamin Disraeli, in order to become a member of the Parliament, had to be a Christian. Of course, Benjamin Disraeli was, was Jewish. He was born to a Jewish family. His uh, grandfather was Jewish. His father had converted. Uh, he was brought up as a Christian, but he always regarded himself as a Jew ethnically. And we're going to get to that issue in a minute as to whether Jews are a race when we get to uh, Whoopi Goldberg's uh, statement. We're going to talk about that as well. But until 1753, uh, in order to be in Parliament or to be naturalized as a citizen, you had to take an oath to Christianity. You had to take an oath that you were a Christian. And if you didn't take that oath, you couldn't be naturalized or a member of uh, Parliament. And um, what happened is they passed the statute. It was an amazing statute, amazing statute, giving Jews the right to be citizens. Well, what do you think happened? The statute being passed caused an outburst of anti-Semitism and resulted in riots and, and demonstrations, and uh, the newspapers went crazy. Uh, I'll just read you. Um, uh, uh, the Jewish naturalization bill, they said, would cause Britons to lose their liberties, their property. Now listen to this. Their liberties, their property, and their foreskins. They would require everybody to be circumcised, just the way Jews are circumcised. That what was in the newspapers. In fact, songs were written about that. Here's a ditty that was written right after this Jew statute was passed. So shocking a thought is sufficient to scare one. Think well, lady son, of the operation and join with good Christians in saving the nation. And as the result of this terrible, bigoted campaign against Jews, within a few years, the Jew statute was rescinded. And for Jews to become members of parliament, they had to swear an oath to Christianity as Benjamin Disraeli had to swear in order to become a member of parliament and then ultimately the Prime Minister of Israel, but the United Prime Minister, sorry, the Prime Minister of England. It's interestingly enough that in Israel, you can be the Prime Minister of Israel if you're a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist. There have been several who have been atheists, including the founder of Israel, Ben Gurion. But you don't have to take a religious oath in Israel. But in England, you had to take a religious oath. Well, George Washington changed all that as, long, as well as the Constitution. George Washington wrote a famous letter to the um, uh, Jewish congregation in Newport, uh, Rhode Island, I, I have the quote here, uh, in which he said, for happily, the government of the United States, which gives bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only, only, that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual 
support. In other words, George Washington sent a message to the Jewish community of Newport and to the Jewish community in the United States, which was small, just a few thousand people, mostly Sephardic Jews from uh, Amsterdam, from Portugal. Um, there were some famous ones, Chaim Solomon, who helped win the revolution. Um, but in any event, the message was Jews are equal in the United States. We're not following what's going on in England. In England, you have to take an oath, not in the United States. In the United States of America, you can hold office, no matter what your religion is. Or if you have no religion, you can affirm. You don't have to swear. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a, a deist. Um, he wrote his own, as you probably know, his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible, which took the New Testament and took out all of the miracles and included only the teachings of Jesus, which he thought were absolutely wonderful, and they are. Um, but he took out the miracles. He took out the uh, virgin birth. He took out uh, many of the other things that uh, he, as a rational person, didn't personally uh, believe in. He was thought of as an atheist. He wasn't an atheist, uh, but he was, a, he, was, he was a deist, which is probably closer today to being an agnostic. And uh, even John Adams, uh, basically, who was very Christian, said that uh, within years, most Americans will be Unitarians. Uh, he wasn't right about that. But um, he understood that uh, religious liberty is crucially important. And for religious liberty to prevail, everybody has to be treated equally. I think the same thing is true with race and with gender. We want race and gender not to become barriers to success. I think the American way is for everybody to be treated meritocratically. Martin Luther King, I was there. I was a law clerk in um, August of, of 1963, and the judge I was clerking for and I went to the outskirts of the uh, famous Martin Luther King uh, speech. And you know what people don't remember, unless you've been there, is the beginning of that event was boring as could be. Everybody got up and they spoke. Every organizational leader got up and they spoke. People were leaving. People were falling asleep. There were some good singers, but the speeches weren't particularly great. And then Martin Luther King got up there and said, I have a dream. And part of his dream was that there will come a day when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character. That has always been my dream. And Martin Luther King would not be happy with Joe Biden saying, I'm going to judge nominees to the Supreme Court, not only by their character, but also by the color of their skin and by their gender. And uh, President Biden's probably only going to get one vacancy um, on the Supreme Court. There, others are not particularly old. There are a lot of young relatively young justices, possibly, possibly um, you'd get one resignation on the right, maybe Clarence Thomas, he's uh, among the older justices, but he's determined to stay on and he works out every day. So I think he'll, he'll live a long time. God bless him. Um, and, um, um, and, and, and if he has his only nomination and he limits it to uh, an African-American woman, I think history will not treat that very well. Now, defenders of President Biden say that Donald Trump did the same thing. He said he'd like to appoint a woman to the Supreme Court when he appointed 
um, uh, Justice um, Merritt to the Supreme Court, but he didn't say he was going to limit his his uh, choices, and he didn't do it as a campaign promise. I think the same thing was true of Ronald Reagan when he said he would like to appoint a woman. He announced that he was going to appoint a woman. He had already selected essentially the person he was going to appoint, and he just announced that the person he was going to select was going to be a woman. That's a big difference uh, from announcing, even before your president, that if elected, and if there is a Supreme Court vacancy, I will fill it only by having a, a, a black woman uh, for, for the job. So I think there is a, a, a big difference, and I do think that there is a, um, a constitutional dimension to this issue. As I said, clearly if he said he was going to appoint only a Muslim, that would be unconstitutional. I think everybody now concedes that. Even the man who wrote me this letter changed his mind on that and said, no, if he appointed only a Muslim, probably it would be unconstitutional. But I think when you think about the 14th Amendment, you think about the 19th Amendment, and you combine it with uh, Article 6, you come to the conclusion at least that the spirit of the Constitution should not preclude anybody from being considered for a nomination to the Supreme Court based on, on race and gender. Look, there are an enormous number of qualified black women, uh, and I'm sure that President Biden will pick a very, very qualified person. And, um, and I think I'll applaud the choice. Uh, if he picks somebody who's highly, highly qualified, I'm sure he will, and she happens to be a black woman, I think that would be just, just great. But I just don't want whoever he picks to go into history with an asterisk saying, not that she was the most qualified person in America for the job, but she was the most qualified black woman. Now, she may end up being the most qualified person in America. Some people on the list, it's a very good list, are probably among the most qualified people in America. And of course, for years, it was not a meritocracy. The Supreme Court, there were regional factors, there were political factors, uh, there were obviously in the old days religious factors. Those don't exist any anymore. But, you know, the Supreme Court has changed dramatically. In the last um, century, the first century and a quarter, almost all white male Protestants. But more recently, there have been, um, I think I have my numbers right, 13 Catholics, eight Jews, five women, and two African-Americans. This would increase the number of women from five to six, the number of African-Americans from two to three. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I would hope there'd be even more uh, people of color and people of minorities. And I'd like to see some Asian-Americans on the court, some Muslim-Americans on the court, people of every best background, of every ethnicity, uh, but not picked on that basis, picked on the basis of their quality and their merits. The goal is to create an equality whereby a meritocracy produces diversity. That's what we want. We want diversity resulting from meritocracy, not from limiting who you pick. And as I said yesterday, too, it's ironic that the Supreme Court is considering this very issue as we speak um, uh, in regard to Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Whether or not a public university in North Carolina, private university, Harvard, which gets government funding, can use race as a factor. Um, my view, and I was always opposed, I was always opposed in the beginning, I haven't changed, 
I was always opposed to using race as a determinative factor because I felt that when you count the number of blacks admitted to a school like Harvard, when you just do it on the basis of numbers, we want 13%, first, you're going to end up with quotas. And second, you're going to prefer inevitably wealthy, well-educated, um, um, uh, African-American candidates over poor, less well-educated uh, ones. Uh, and, and, and it's much easier to integrate somebody who went to Groton or Exeter, and this was the president of Harvard who said this, much easier to integrate people who come from fancy elite high schools than kids who come from bad neighborhoods, dangerous neighborhoods, uh, from neighborhoods where there's a lot of drugs, whether they be white or, 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 or black. It's going to be much harder to integrate a kid from Appalachia or a kid from uh, inner cities in, in, in the north uh, into Harvard. But the effort has to be made. You can't discriminate within admittees who are African-American uh, by preferring the wealthy over the poor if you're going to have race-based affirmative action. So I've always myself favored uh, affirmative action, I favor affirmative action, based on economic considerations, based on challenges that have been overcome, based, for example, on, on, on physical challenges. Uh, one of the best students I ever had in my class, I used to admit 500, there were 500 applicants for a class I taught. It was called, Where Does Your Morality Come From? It was freshmen in college, 18-year-old kids. And I would get 500 applications for the 15 spots. I don't know if I still get 500 applications based on my cancellations um, by people on the hard left. But I got 500 applications for 15 spots. And one of the best ones I ever got was from a woman who was physically challenged from birth, and she spent her entire life in a wheelchair. And she said she has seen the world from a very unusual perspective. She always has to look up. She's always looking up because she's always sitting and everybody's always standing. And I admitted her into the class. She had all the rest of the credentials too. But she was a phenomenal addition to the class, a phenomenal student. She added a kind of diversity that race alone doesn't add. There's an article in the New York Times the other day from an African-American man who said, my children don't offer any diversity to Harvard. They're rich kids from the Upper West Side of New York. They shop in the same stores as the white kids. They uh, eat in the same restaurants. They watch the same television programs. They root for the same athletic teams. They're just like the, the, the white kids. They don't offer any diversity. If, if you want diversity, you've got to get people who have lived a different kind of life. Color of skin has one element of diversity, but not many other elements of diversity. Which leads me to the next point I wanted to talk about today, and that is, what does a race mean? What does it mean to say somebody is a member of a race? Do races really matter today? Uh, are people who are uh, of darker skin really of a different race than people who are of lighter skin, especially we live in a world today where so many uh, intermarriages, mixed marriages, uh, where so many people are of mixed uh, uh, heritage. Uh, what does race mean? Well, Whoopi Goldberg, who I, I know and like very much, I've been in her show, The View, on, on, on several occasions. I've always liked her very much. 
she made a real real blunder yesterday. Um, she was on The View, and, and she said, the Holocaust isn't about race. It's about people mistreating each other. She said, it's not about race because it involves two white groups of people, Jews and Nazis. Both are white, so it's not about uh, race. Well, it was ignorance, not maliciousness, and, and she apologized, and I, I, for one, I'm not in a position to apologize on behalf of Holocaust survivors, but uh, as a Jew, I accept her apology. Um, what she was saying is, the way we talk about race in America today, mostly black and white, uh, it wasn't about that kind of racism. But obviously the Nazis considered the Jews a race. Um, the laws that they passed against Jews that prevented Jews from teaching at universities were called racial laws, racial laws. Nazism, and originally the original form of anti-Semitism uh, invented by a man named Wilhelm Marr, uh, was a racial anti-Semitism. It replaced religious anti-Semitism. There had been a lot of religious anti-Semitism. The Jews killed Christ, the Jews were this, the Jews were that. They weren't believers. Then it became racial. And, and you know, Hitler sent to the gas chambers many Christians, uh, and including Christian and Catholic priests and Protestant ministers whose parents were Jewish. Uh, they had converted and become good Christians, good Protestants, good Catholics. But for Hitler, no. For Hitler, if you had one quarter of your heritage was Jewish, you were Jew. It was like the racial laws in the South in the United States where one drop of black blood made you an African-American, subject to slavery, etc. Hitler borrowed that kind of racism and um, uh, said that if one of your grandparents was Jewish, even if you're a Catholic priest, you're Jewish and you'll be sent to your death in Auschwitz or Birkenau or uh, uh, Treblinka or one of, the death, one of the death camps. So it was racial. It was racial. Um, you know, while I'm, I'm showing you things, let me show you another one of my prized uh, possessions. This is a handwritten letter from Albert Einstein, and it's fascinating. It's written in German, so I'm not going to read you from the German. I'm going to read you from the translation. And he writes about anti-Semitism. And he says, first I'd like to thank you for sending me the interesting book about our eternal unresolvable problem. It was a book about anti-Semitism. Our eternal unresolvable problem. It suffices to know that it is a sickness of the others, a sickness of the others, anti-Semitism, and not our own, not a Jewish sickness, a sickness of those who are anti-Semitic. Meaning, and this is the key sentence, the reason I bought this letter, this is the key sentence, meaning that the most important thing is not to catch it, that is, not to catch the sickness of anti-Semitism, and to keep our balance, now here are the key words, to keep our balance, as long as they don't beat us to death. In other words, he's saying, don't worry about anti-Semitism. It's their problem, as long as they don't beat us to death. That's an interesting letter. The most interesting thing about it, and you'll be shocked, is the date on which it was written. 
the date on which it was written, April 19th, 1944, right in the middle of the Holocaust. April 1944, millions of Jews were being killed in April of 1944. They were being taken from Hungary and put on trains and sent to the death camps. How could Albert Einstein, this genius, have said and written in 1944, as long as they don't beat us to death? They were beating us to death. Did Einstein not know about the Holocaust in 1944? Well, if you read the New York Times, he wouldn't know about the Holocaust because the New York Times didn't report on the Holocaust. Uh, there's a great book by Deborah Lipstadt called Beyond Belief, which goes through every issue of the New York Times and shows that occasionally on page 38 they would mention the killing of some Jews somewhere. But the Holocaust was not reported by uh, the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times was owned by Jews, the Salzberger family, but they didn't want the newspaper to be too Jewish. So they wouldn't report on the Holocaust. There were great men, great men of different faiths who tried to report on the Holocaust. There was a, a man in Poland, uh, a Catholic, a, um, a, a, a guy who just graduated uh, law school, who went and, 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 and pretended that he was a guard in one of the death camps, and he stayed in the death camp, and he had a, a great, great memory, and he memorized everything. He memorized where the people were taken, how many of them were taken, and he remembered everything. And then the Polish underground smuggled him out of the death camp and smuggled him out of Poland to England, and then from England to the United States, where he met with Felix Frankfurter. I'm the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus, but I'm so embarrassed and ashamed to bear his name about this story. So this great young man, lawyer, went to Felix Frankfurter and, and said, I have to report to you what is actually going on in Poland. They're just murdering millions of Jews, and I need you to get me a meeting with with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and so that I can tell him what's actually going on, I'll give him specifics, I'll tell him how many people in which camp and where they are, etc. And he related the entire story of the Holocaust to Felix Frankfurter. And Felix Frankfurter looked in, him in the eye and said, I have to tell you, at a time like this, it's important. I cannot believe a word you're saying. Felix Frankfurter refused to believe an account of Jews being murdered. Now, I've always speculated, did he really not believe it? Or did he pretend not to believe it because he didn't want to be the one to tell Franklin Delano Roosevelt about it? He didn't see himself as kind of a Jewish justice. He was a justice and a very close friend of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But he will always go down in history with an asterisk next to his name for being a Jew who hid his Jewishness like the New York Times did and refused to disclose hard factual evidence of the Holocaust. And so it's very possible that Albert Einstein, who had many friends in Germany, had lived in Germany much of his life, his native language was German, he wrote this letter in German, possibly he didn't know about the Holocaust. Otherwise, I can't see any explanation. 
for how he could have written this letter saying, basically, don't worry about anti-Semitism as long as they don't beat us to death. They're beating us to death. We should worry about anti-Semitism. We have to worry about anti-Semitism. And we have to worry about anti-Semitism today, too. Look, it's been with us a long, long time. I'm going to show you another one of my favorite things that I have. Um, I'm a big Superman fan. I grew up with Superman. Um, and uh, I recently discovered that Superman did a public um, service ad um, shortly after the end of World War II. And it has uh, a young kid, looks like any other young kid. Hey, fellas, can I join you in the clubhouse? Sure. Come on in. What's your name? And then he says, my name is Sam Levy. And one of the kids says, Levy? Well, we're not glad to meet you. We don't go for your kind. See? And then Superman takes him and flies with him to Pearl Harbor uh, and, and, and explains and has his, his uncle or something explain to him, showing a Star of David on a cemetery plot, saying, the man who saved my life fighting was a man named Joe Rubin, and his religion was the same as Sam's. He was a wonderful guy. He was my buddy. It didn't matter to me what his religion was. And then Superman says, it never should matter what a person is, Protestant, Jew, or Catholic, nor should it matter what the color of a person's skin is or where his parents were born. That's what Brotherhood Week is about. Let's practice it 52 weeks a year. That's Superman. Superman says it, so it must be true. So, you know, we have to keep fighting uh, against uh, every kind of, of bigotry, against anti-Semitism, against anti-black racism, against anti-Muslim racism, against anti-Asian racism. Uh, we're better than that. We're a better country than that. We're a country formed on the basis of George Washington's statement that to bigotry, we will give no sanction. And so I'm hoping that we can all join together and make every week Brotherhood Week and make sure that we don't make race a dividing factor. We don't make race something that pulls us apart, that we follow Martin Luther King's dream. Let's hope and aspire to a time when all of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will be judged and will judge others by the quality of their character and not the color of their skin. And um, what I'm hoping for in the future is that we're going to get real-time questions. And so I'll be able to answer your questions in, in real time. Obviously, many of you will disagree with some of the things I've said. If you don't disagree with what I said today, you'll disagree with what I say tomorrow. Uh, I'm not the kind of guy who speaks pablum. Uh, and so uh, please ask hard questions, send them to me, and I'll try my best to answer. As I've said before, no question is out of bounds. No comment is out of bounds. No censorship here. Uh, no cancellation here. Uh, whatever you say, I will respond to. I welcome comments, questions on every issue, issues that I've talked about, issues that I've not talked about. I started the show by responding to somebody who I 
disagreed with. And uh, maybe I've even persuaded him. I don't know. Maybe he can persuade me. But dialogue and debate is the way we go. And so let's all live by the creed, or as Superman says it, Superman's code for buddies. I'm in favor of Superman. I'm in favor of Superman's code for buddies. And um, let's continue to try to live in a way that emphasizes our, our similarities, that emphasizes the fact that we're all Americans who care deeply about our country and its future. We can continue to be divided over political issues. But uh, when it comes to race and gender and religion, we're all one. So see you tomorrow on The Der Show. See you on Rumble. Any of you who are members of the locals community, uh, see you on, on, on that. And um, let's uh, continue to dialogue.